Hey everyone, welcome to this week's 5 Minutes of Fun. Today I'm going to talk about the Colorado housing market, and I'm going to tell you a little tale about it. So my brother and his wife are moving out um, to a different house. They just sold their house, and they're going to move about 30 minutes away from where my husband and I live. Right now they live about 7 minutes away, so they're moving significantly further than, than they would be. And they're moving closer to the rest of my entire extended family who lives about 45 minutes to an hour away. So everyone's making this big migration. My, uh, and my brother and sister-in-law are now joining them. So that prompted my husband and I to go maybe also look for a house kind of out in that area. So for any Denverites, we're looking kind of in Parker. So we go to this area that's known for having like pretty old houses. Uh, and it's a suburb, but the lot sizes are a little bit bigger. So they're like half an acre, which is pretty good for a suburb. And then there's trees all around and a lot of it kind of backs up to an open space. So we found this house with a great backyard, great open space. It looked like a Brady Bunch house. Like I kid you not, there was this banister that was blue and it was this old house from the seventies with a really cozy living room, big stone fireplace, like huge stone fireplace, a great kitchen, all the stuff. There were some popcorn ceilings and we're like, well, that's probably as best as from the seventies. You know, we'll get, we'll take care of that at some point, I'm sure. So when we saw the house on Redfin, it was three hours after they had listed it. And I immediately called our realtor and had her set up a showing. We couldn't get a showing until six, I think it was 6.30 the next day. And so I was like, oh shoot, there's showings literally back to back all day. We can't get in because we were, I think, free the entire day. We wanted to go at like one, uh, but we couldn't get in until 6.30. So we went there, saw the house, saw that it was really good. And we're like, well, there were showings all day. Clearly this is going to go fast. So we put in an offer very early the next morning, like right away the next morning. And we were told that there were only, there were four offers in already uh, that were over ask. So we decided to put in an offer that was, let me do the math here. It was, I think it would have been 4% above ask, which we thought was a decent thing because the other real estate agent had kind of hinted like, okay, maybe, you know, we're kind of around this range. So we did that. We put an offer over ask. So we get a call on Sunday and they said, oh, like our, our realtor said, oh, you didn't get the house. There were 22 offers, 22 offers in 48 hours. That is insanity. And we, I bet we were, I mean, I'm sure since we were like the fifth offer that we weren't even close to the high end of what was offered. So I bet it went for like 10%, you know, eight to 10% over asking. And this is like an old house from the seventies. I mean, it was really nice. It was good, but there was definitely some work to be done, you know, in some areas. And it went for that much over asking price. So if you have had experience with the housing market in one of those crazy cities, I feel for you. And I go on Redfin sometimes and I look at Texas and I'm like, ah, oh, how nice and affordable it would be in Texas. But for this episode, we are talking about the Enneagram. So let's get into it. Enjoy. 
Hey everyone, welcome to A Millennial Learns with me, Abby Rancor. This podcast is a place to learn about faith, theology, politics, history, and some fun random things along the way. Let's dive in. Welcome everyone to this week's episode. We are talking about the Enneagram today, which I was a very interesting topic to actually research and the history and everything. So I keep seeing a lot of debate about whether Christians should be using the Enneagram or not. I didn't even think this was a debate, honestly, until a couple months ago, because I saw so many Christians using the Enneagram. But the more and more I'm on Instagram, the more I see Christians saying, no way, don't use the Enneagram. So I figured I had to see for myself. So this is the deep dive into the Enneagram and if Christians should be using it. So if you don't know what the Enneagram is, it is a personality typing system. So the full name is called the Enneagram of Personality Types. There's a website called the Enneagram Institute that offers a test similar to other personality tests that you uh, have probably taken before that, you know, ask you how you react in certain situations or, you know, what your behaviors usually are. And that will divide you into nine different types. So the nine types are presented on a nine-pointed star shape and they go in order. So as you move clockwise around the star shape, you know, you start at a one and it goes all the way through nine. So yeah, there's a number on each point of the star. The Enneagram Institute points out that you will have some traits that you exhibit from every single type on the Enneagram or in the test, but you're going to lean more heavily into one and that's your dominant type. So The way that they're categorized is that every type is based on a basic fear or basic desire that drive uh, their lives. And it's kind of a a pair. So, for example, one type might have a fear of the lack of security. I think that's a type six. And their basic desire is, therefore, to feel secure. So it's it's a pair and uh, the desire is the antidote to the fear. Um, Another thing that's pretty important to know about the Enneagram is the concept of wings. So a wing, you have two options for wings, whatever dominant type you are. Um, And those options are just the numbers right next to you. So if you're a three, you're either going to be a wing two or a four. And if you're a dominant type one, your wings could either be a nine or two. So even if you are pretty similar to two numbers that are opposite like across the Enneagram so for example mine I thought I was an eight for a long time but I pretty much test exactly even if whether I'm an eight or three so I couldn't be an eight wing three I could only be like an eight wing seven or three wing two or something like that so and then so the last thing I think that's relevant to this and what's going to be relevant in the history when discussing the history of the Enneagram is our arrows so from your number Since it's a star shape, if you look at your number on the star, there's going to be two lines that connect to another point of the star. And when you take it in the context of personality types, those arrows point to a different number or a different type. So one of those arrows means that you, in a healthy, good spot, when you're in a great spot in life, you tend to take on the good personality traits of that number that it's pointing to. So for example, the area of growth for a type eight is a two. So it points to a two. And that means when I'm healthy and I'm 
from a Christian perspective, if I'm reading my Bible, if I'm praying, if everything is great, if I have a good relationship with God, you tend to take on the good attributes of a type two, which for a type two, it's that they're nurturing and caring and all of that. The other arrow means the opposite thing. So in a bad time, you tend to take on the bad characteristics of the other number that it's pointing to. So for an eight, that number is a five. So for an eight, the other arrow is pointing to a five, which means I would take on, or I would tend to take on the more negative qualities of a five when I'm in distress or I'm unhealthy or, you know, not doing all the good things in life that I know I should do. So for a five, I think that's like withdrawing, lying, and being deceitful. Those are two other things that got developed in the Enneagram, and we'll talk about the history of those. So that's kind of what the Enneagram is. So I want to talk a little bit about what my original thoughts on the Enneagram were. So I was introduced to it about a year ago, I think, um, and I absolutely loved it when I first heard about it. I thought it was super, super accurate, especially with the wings and the arrows and everything. Like, I definitely have noticed in my own life, you know, that I do become more nurturing and caring when I'm in a good spot and more like secretive and kind of withdrawn if I'm in a bad spot. So I was like, wow, this is very helpful. I think I'm an eight wing seven and everything seemed to line up a lot. And I thought it was great. So about personality tests and tools in general, I think they can be very helpful. And I do think that we should be learning about ourselves as much as we can in order to identify, you know, our own strengths and weaknesses and where we tend to go right and where we tend to go wrong so that we can grow in the areas, um, you know, continue to grow in our strengths and also try to minimize our weaknesses. So I think tools are very valid and can help us point out weak spots so we can grow and point to God. That being said, I do not think a personality test like this can can work or you can do it alone and in isolation from God, or it's going to be no good, basically. So these are not meant to fix you on your own. And then you should really be going and saying, okay, I learned this thing from a personality test. I'm going to bring this to God, pray about it, ask him to help you go meditate on the word in that area. And that will help. I, I definitely think that putting this alone and just thinking you're going to fix yourself all on your own is making, you know, personality tests and tools and an idol and you're replacing God's position by doing that. So the other reason I, I liked the Enneagram when I first started looking at it is that I felt like some tests similar or like personality tests or from the little I know about astrology seem to put you in a box. And so they say, oh, that's just how you are. It's almost an excuse for your behavior and how you are. But the Enneagram makes it a really easy jump to say, these are the helpful steps to improve in my weak areas without just like throwing up your hands and saying, oh, this is just how you are. This is your personality type and there's nothing you can do. It gives you things to kind of watch out for in your life patterns to say, oh, I don't know if I'm if I'm in the right here, or this is what I tend to do when I'm unhealthy. So if I notice myself starting to do those behaviors, I kind of know I'm drifting from, from God. Um, and we'll get on, in the history of this because uh, like the, the book that I read, it's called The Road Back to You. It is from a Christian perspective. So they say, hey, when you notice these behaviors, you know that you're 
in a wrong place. You need to get back to God, really. The Maybe the super secular version of the Enneagram would say you're away from your true self or you're away from harmony or things like that. But at least the book that I read said that it is, you know, when you're not doing right by God or you are disconnected from him, essentially. I also found it very helpful when communicating with others. So there's whole sections on the Enneagram Institute website that talk about communication between the types. And like I said, when I took it, I thought I was definitely an eight. And now there's some question of whether I'm an eight or a three. But um, either way, my Enneagram type description really recognized that I like debates, which explains this podcast a lot. Um, and I love to get into issues and dissect them and hash them out. And, um, I feel very connected to someone after a heated discussion or debate, even if I'm just playing devil's advocate or something, I like debating about things, even if they're trivial or, you know, um, not super important. So I like to throw around ideas and, and hash them out. And I feel really good about like an intense, uh, discussion. But when I was reading the types, I tried to see which one my husband was, who, you know, I I had just been dating him for probably like six months when I realized what the Enneagram was, and and then I read his type. And he is a nine, which means he does not like conflict. So before I kind of read about the Enneagram, I could not understand really, like fully, why he would be so drained after a conversation that I found super energizing and very fun. So we would have some debate and I would love it. And then he'd walk away being exhausted. And I'd be like, wow, what a great talk. And he'd just be so tired and like emotionally drained. Um, and then after reading the Enneagram book, I realized that his personality type, that's super common. Like he does not like conflict and he'll engage in it while it's necessary for sure, but he'll never probably enjoy it the way I did. Um, and so it was helpful in, in knowing that and just saying like, okay, this is not, uh, this is a conversation that's probably going to energize me, but I should probably find someone to have that conversation in particular with someone who's also going to be energized by a debate. And so I learned how to kind of cut it off or drop the conversation before he got to that point. Um, so I think it's helped a lot with communication between types can also help in like work environments. Um, if I can tell someone's definitely a three, it's like, okay, this is how they like to be communicated to. Um, so that has, I thought was very good. So those are my original thoughts on the Enneagram. And you might be asking like, yeah, if you like it so much, why are you even researching if you should use it? It sounds, you know, there's Christian books about it. There's Christian podcasts about it. Uh, there's a lot of Christians are using it. Like, is this even a debate? So I, as I see more and more people on Instagram, I thought it was just a given that the Enneagram was totally fine, but I keep seeing people that are saying no to the Enneagram really for two reasons. And I'll kind of get into these more, but one of them is that personality tests are bad because it's focusing on yourself instead of God. And then the other one is that the Enneagram itself has bad roots and wasn't based in Christianity and um, I heard very bad things about the teachers of it and, and things like that. So in order to figure out those questions, uh, I went and did some research about the history of the Enneagram, which is actually very, it's actually a very long history of the Enneagram and it's morphed a lot of times. And so 
yeah, I thought it was it was pretty interesting. But this is the history of the Enneagram. So um, I'm going to link all these sources in the show notes. I might just send you a link to my blog and all of my sources will be in my blog post about this. So, okay, so the Enneagram Institute, the one that I mentioned that gives the test, has on their website that the Enneagram symbol has roots in antiquity and can be traced back as far as the works of Pythagoras. So I didn't know what antiquity meant, so that just means like a very long time ago. Basically, ancient history. So, and then I found another website called the Enneagram Monthly that says the search for the origin of the Enneagram leads to a labyrinth of historical and spiritual cross currents. Yet in the writings of Evagrius Ponticus, a Greek Christian contemplative living in the Egyptian desert in the fourth century, I think we stumble across a major indication of the origin of the Enneagram. In Evagrius's writings, in Evagrius's writings, there are both an Enneagram-like symbolism and eight evil thoughts, which were later to become the seven deadly sins of Christianity. Okay, so basically it introduces this guy, Evagrius Ponticus. So he was, like it said, a Greek Christian contemplative. So he basically had writings that had this Enneagram shape in them, and he used the Pythagorean number to describe the Enneagram shape. So it's basically based off of off of that number. And honestly, I've seen some Christians bow out here because Pythagorean's number seems too superstitious or it was labeled or they labeled it demonic or yeah, something bad, like too much into number theory. So, um, so they just say right there, like they're done. And the fact that it's based off of Pythagorean, uh, theology, I guess, uh, is too much. So, but I looked into what, uh, what that meant really, what the Pythagorean number and Pythagoras, uh, did. So Pythagoras believed that all of the universe follows an inner order. So that Enneagram, uh, monthly website, he's, they said that Pythagoras believed that the form of creation was a divine fabrication in accordance with the reason of the creator. And as such was to some extent comprehensible by the human mind. This form or divine structure could be apprehended, although imperfectly, in the study of number, a study which followed logically from the belief in the progression of the divine reason to its imperfect reflection in humanity. Number represented the structure behind appearances, the archetypal pattern upon which all the complexities of perceived creation was determined. So essentially, what it's saying is that he thought that you could study numbers and ratios of nature and things like that and point to a creator is what I gather from that. And that doesn't seem bad to me. It's essentially proving that there's a creator who has order and there's an order through everything in nature, which isn't a concern to me. It's really the opposite that, yeah, nature, if it's created by a divine creator, is going to have some sort of order and some sort of uh, reason. And basically Pythagoras's theory behind this was that you would find that in nature. So this is things like the golden ratio of like our faces and flowers. And this helped Kepler, uh, know the order of the solar system. It said, um, because he went off of Pythagoras's theories. So again, you can take this numbers game and idolize it and idolize the numbers and the nature instead of the creator. But assuming there's a focus on God, I think this can be used as an evidence of creator. Definitely not something to say, let's nix the Enneagram because it was based on Pythagoras' number. 
It's really a number theory that is pointing to a creator. So this man, so the man Evagrius, he used a lot of, of theories like this and mixed it with Christianity. And his main focus was this triangle of 153 dots. It creates a perfect triangle shape. So he used the, the triangle shape with three different uh, traits on it. So his most famous three were faith, hope, and love. They would each go on a side. Gold, silver, and precious stones that would all go on a side. And then there was one about virtues, uh, contemplation in the divine nature, and spiritual knowledge of God. Those were on one. So, yeah, he did a lot of, of these theories and theology sort of thing with these numbers. Again, you know, just remember, I think you can take this too far, but if you're using numbers to point out that is the existence of God, I think that's fine. Then there was a second player in this, which was George Gurdjieff, and he was said to have been possibly influenced by Evagrius's teachings and work because they were in the same region, kind of around the same time. So uh, George Gurdjieff reintroduced a symbol to the modern world in the late 1910s. So it was like 1916 that he started doing this. Um, and even though he was and he was really, really secretive about his source of teachings. So they don't really know for sure if Evagrius's teachings uh, rubbed off on Gurdjieff, but it's a reasonable assumption. Um, but even like his best students and best, even his best students, Gurdjieff would not tell the source of where he got his teachings. So he introduced the shape to kind of the Western world more. And he was known to be a he was a well-known spiritual teacher. So he said that the Enneagram shape, when he found it, he, he taught that the Enneagram shape represented a harmonic structure and an inner dynamic of the cosmos, is what the quote said from the Enneagram Institute. So that would be like the structure of the star and then the lines going through would be kind of the inner dynamic. So he taught this shape through some spiritual dances. He kind of combined like cosmology it sounded like he he combined cosmology and yoga and this shape from the christian evagrius and he kind of did this overall principle where he taught these dances and he would tell his best students their chief feature based on these dances okay so that was like kind of starting to get into the personality type um, and then he got passed on to a man named Oscar Ichazo, who was born in Bolivia, and then he it moved all around South America and into parts of Asia. And he eventually created the Erica School in Chile, and then eventually the United States. So two psychologists, Claudio Naranjo and John Lilly, studied with Oscar Ichazo. So this was in the 1960s. So uh, Ichazo got it in the 60s, which had been... Gurdjieff's kind of like 50 years before. So he claims it uh, contained components from mystical Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Taoism, Buddhism, and Greek philosophy. So this is where I got kind of weird about it because mystical has such a bad connotation in my mind about like demonic things or spiritually, you know, things that go against the Christian God. Um, but it was confusing because it said mystical Christianity, mystical Judaism. So I looked up what they meant by mystical Christianity. And two of the examples I found were uh, things like 
Catholics believing that the body and blood of Christ, or the, the Eucharist, is actually the body and blood of Christ. That is Christian mysticism because it is a mystery. Another one was when the Holy Spirit fills you and you become sanctified uh, with the help of the Holy Spirit. That's a mystery, which a lot of the Bible has these mysteries and, and faith is somewhat a mystery. So I guess if that's what they're defining as mystical Christianity, I don't have a problem with it. So I think that just means kind of Christianity mysteries and, and religion. So it, I think it just took religious teachings from all of those different religions and kind of assembled them all. He assembled them all into this Enneagram type uh, typing system. So he taught his philosophers actually about 108 different Enneagrams. So there were a ton, but the movement in America is based on four Enneagrams. And those are the kind of characteristics and traits that the Enneagram Institute test will tell you about. So those four are passions, virtues, fixations, and holy ideas. And I'll get more, more into those. Also, I forgot to mention that Gurdjieff, when he, uh, when he was like assembling all of these, there are, when he was assembling all these teachings from different places, uh, there was some debate whether he got it from like a Christian group or if it was from the Sufis, which is an Islamic group, uh, or, or tradition. And so it's really up in the air and he wouldn't tell anyone. So it could be, uh, kind of the main theme in all these guys is like, they don't really tell where it's from. It's just a mix of as many religions and traditions as they have been exposed to, it seems like. So they're searching for kind of like a universal truth. So the way Achazo described it is that there are kind of two uh, parts of you. One is your essence and one is your ego. So this is a quote from the Enneagram Institute. It says, and this is from Achazo, he says, we have to distinguish between a man as he is in essence and as he is an ego or personality. In essence, everyone is perfect, fearless, and in loving unity with the entire cosmos. There is no conflict with the person, uh, within the person, head, heart, and stomach, or between the person and others. Then something happens, the ego begins to develop, karma accumulates, and there is a transition uh, from objectivity to subjectivity. Man falls from essence into personality. So, Again, from a Christian perspective, you can say that your essence that he describes as being perfect and in unity and all of that is when you're in a when you're in unity with God and when you're aligned with God and you're that's your sinless true self that God creates you with. And then your ego that he describes is your sinful, like worldly, broken self. So so yeah, it didn't, I guess, come straight from Christianity, but there's an easy uh parallel between what Christianity believes and what this is saying. So Achazo noticed that there were nine different ways in which we lose our center, he called, or become distorted. And then he believed if you recognize your pattern of distortion, you can, you know, recognize the quality of your true self or your essence that you're obscuring and you can transform it and, and work through a process to make that better. So yeah, so there were four Enneagrams that he taught his philosophers, like I mentioned, virtues, passions, holy ideas, and fixations, uh, and they go in pairs. So vir your virtues are an antidote to passions, and that's things like, so passions are like an, an underlying emotional response, 
and your virtues will show more when you get those under control. Um, and then holy ideas are what, what you believe, I guess, or what arises in a clear and perfect mind when you, they call it, are present and awake. Um, and the loss of holy ideas leads to your ego fixation, which means that you're trying to restore your true self or your balance, um, but you're you're going through your ego or your worldly self, which is impossible to do. So that's where it went in the 60s, is that that was really the first formation of like the nine different personality types and how you're, uh, you know, you're driven by a fear or a distortion of your true self. Um, and those are the, the types. So then in the 1970s, the Enneagram started to spread into Jesuit retreat houses, it says. Um, and a guy named Don Richard Riso, he was at a Jesuit seminary. Um, he studied the Enneagram for 12 years, and he's actually the one that added the growth, or he added the two arrows. So like where you grow into and where you kind of like growing in good times and you are uh, kind of backtracking in bad times. He added the theory of the arrows going to the other types. Um, so like I said, the one test on the Enneagram Institute, and you can take it a few different places, I think, but, um, that one test now tells you your type and then gives you characteristics based on those four Enneagram, uh, versions, which are your virtues, passions, holy ideas, and ego fixations. So it kind of wraps all of that into one. The whole American movement is based on those four. Um, but it just shows you one on the test and then describes your characteristics on those four separate ones. So that's the history of the, the Enneagram. Uh, a lot of it is actually not as clear as I had thought it was going to be. There's a lot of kind of secrecy about where it came from. It went through definitely a few different transformations from just being like the theory of the actual shape to just saying a core characteristic about you with Gurdjieff to going from Ichazo, um, who really developed the full nine and then the Jesuit who took it, um, to like the growth and, and retraction arrows. Um, so since it is so secretive and so unknown, it is kind of hard to say exactly where the ideas came from. But basically the arguments against the Enneagram, we're going to get into those and, and try to figure out if I'm now kind of for or against using the Enneagram. So the first argument against using the Enneagram that I want to touch on is that you should not be using the Enneagram because it has roots in something other than Christianity. So yeah, I mean, I think that's true. There's it's clear that it wasn't just Christianity. We don't know the history completely, but we know that it wasn't just reading the Bible and taking a personality type based on the Bible. So we know that. So as far as we can tell, the history, you know, the Enneagram came from a lot of different places and it's and it's not just Jesus, basically. But I, I really don't think that this is um, a reason to rule out using it as a tool. And, and here's why. If you believe the Bible is true, if you really believe that what what the Bible is true and you're following it um, and, and trying to go after truth, even if someone gathers something or a theory from many different sources and comes to a conclusion, so the parts that are true are going to line up with the Bible. So we can look to see if what the Enneagram is saying lines up with the Bible. because And we can do that by seeing what it defines as good or bad. Do those line up with what the Bible says is good or bad? And 
I think that it does. For example, it says that in an unhealthy time, in an eight's life, if they're away from their true self, which as a Christian, you can, you can say that that's away from God. If you are having, if you are not in a good spot with your relationship with God, you will adopt an unhealthy and bad characteristics of a five. It says they were, are the negative characteristics of a five, which it labels as like deceit and being withdrawn and lying. And that deceit, withdrawing and lying are all considered bad from the Bible. So those line up. If it said something like, hey, your tendency is to lie, but I think you can use that lie as an advantage and you should do it in this way. And if it encouraged to be a little deceitful and um, that's a strength of your personality, it's like you tend to be deceitful, so use it in your advantage. You can clearly say that that does not line up with the Bible. And so that is invalid. That would not be a, a tool that I would want to use because it's encouraging something that God does not love. It labels good as good and it labels bad as bad. And I mean, that would be a non-starter if it was encouraging something that is a sin in the Bible. But I don't see any evidence of, of the fact that it does that. So I don't think the history of the Enneagram disqualifies you from using the Enneagram as a tool in the Bible, even though it didn't come straight from biblical text. You can use any tool, I think, and discern if it is leading you to God or away from God. Where it does go wrong is the things where it says um, about the ego and being in harmony with like the cosmos and the karma. That is clearly not from Christianity. And so that part we can reject. But the book that I read originally doesn't have that part included. It's purely from a Christian perspective. So I think we're able to kind of take the part that was based on Christianity out of the Enneagram and reject the rest, which I think is what a lot of Enneagram books have done by turning it into a Christian lens. You know, they reject things like karma and uh, some of the traditions by taken by other religions because it doesn't line up with the Bible. So it's not a necessarily, I don't think you should necessarily throw the baby out with the bathwater on that one. Um, you can see what's true within the tool. The second argument I want to talk about is when people say that personality tests should not be used because it focuses on yourself and not Christ, and that you should just read your Bible and wanting to become more like Christ. So I don't agree with this argument, I don't think, even after kind of diving into what personality tests really are. But uh, I don't think using the Enneagram or using a tool similar to this and following the Lord are are mutually exclusive. I think it can be used as a tool to find weaknesses in you and then go to the Lord with them and say, hey, I, I have this weakness, uh, help me with this and, and praying and everything. You don't need the Enneagram. Like the Lord can show that to you through reading the Bible and he probably will, you know, show you some things like that. But there's also some useful things out there that can show you that as well. So if you're using the Bible in your relationship with Jesus as your first guide, there's nothing wrong, I don't think, with using a personality test to learn specifics about where you tend to veer or how you like to communicate. So because of the arguments, like I definitely get the arguments uh, against the use of the Enneagram, but after all these and what I've learned about it, um, I still think the Enneagram is fine for Christians to use with a huge, huge caveat that it needs to be like a way distant second in priority to reading the Bible, 
praying and actually getting into the, to the word of God, because these tools will definitely not replace it. But I do think it can be a helpful uh, thing to look at, at behaviors that you can regularly fall into. So um, that is all for this week's episode about the Enneagram. Let me know what you guys think. I know this is a pretty hotly debated topic and uh, is way more complex than I thought. So DM me on uh, Instagram at a millennial learns. If you have any thoughts about this episode, whether it's right or wrong or anything I left out, uh, I can always do like a follow-up or something. So thank you all so much for listening and have a great week. Next week, we're coming back with an episode on the Immaculate Conception and uh, the logic behind that, where Catholics got that, why Protestants don't think that's true. Um, and I'm going to see where I fall on that debate. So have a great week, everyone. Bye. That is all for this week's episode. Thank you so, so much for listening. I hope you liked it. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening from. And I would really appreciate if you would go rate and review this podcast on the Apple Store. That is going to be how we continue to grow our Millennial Learns family and community. So come back every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific time for a new episode. And DM me any questions on Instagram. It's at a Millennial Learns. Go check me out. Follow me. DM me questions you have about this episode or any future topics you would like to see me dive into. Have an amazing week, everyone, and I will see you Monday.